Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door. You can schedule sessions based on what's most convenient for you, and you don't have to wait weeks to be seen. And BuzzFeed Daily listeners can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed. Go to Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed for 65% off your first month. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. This season, get football on your terms with NFL Game Pass. Let's go! See every snap from every game with full game replays. What a throw, what a catch! Listen to all the action as it happens with live game audio. Watch the dog, G! Leaping grab to Monte Adams! Plus, watch your team on your time with condensed game replays. Wow! Get football on your terms with NFL Game Pass. Go to NFL.com slash Game Pass to start your free trial today. Look through your children's eyes, and you will discover the true magic of a forest. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Prince William is saying the royal family isn't racist. Mixed people are revealing moments when family members have been racist, and it's eye-opening. And we're talking with BuzzFeed News' David Mack about the one-year anniversary of COVID-19 being a pandemic. It's March 11th, 2021. Hey friends, I'm Casey Rackham. And I'm Zach Stafford. Welcome to BuzzFeed Daily and happy anniversary, Casey. Oh God, happy anniversary. What an anniversary. How are you feeling today? How are you you feeling the heaviness of it all? You know what? I was wondering, I thought like in March is when I would really feel it, but I do so clearly see the light at the end of the tunnel that I'm like, I I can see it. And so I'm like able to like get through this moment, but it just truly is wild what we have lived through this past month and uh, this past month. Oh my God, this past year. (laughs) It's been been more than a month. It's been 12 months to be exact. And I think if we had gotten to this moment and there were not vaccines rolling out at a really high pace right now, this would be a whole different type of day. Oh, 100%. I'd be crying or I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't show up to work. We would not have come to work today. And I don't think anyone (laughs) would have come to work today. So, which is fair. (laughs) Okay. So yesterday, um, our show, we talked about a lot of racism and guess what? Today, still talking about it because there's still still a lot of racism. So we're going to start off with more royal family drama. And it's because this time it comes from Prince William, who had this to say when asked about Meghan Markle's interview with Oprah. Sir, have you you spoken to your brother since the interview? No, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I will do. And and can you just let me know, is the the royal family a racist family, sir? We're very much not a racist family. If you can't hear that response, that's William saying they are, quote, very much not a racist family. Of course, this is in response to a moment in the Oprah interview when Meghan said an unnamed member of the royal family expressed concerns over how dark Archie's skin would be. While she didn't name names, there's a lot of speculation that she may have been referring to a future king or one of their wives. I, I know we're focusing on the we're not a racist family bit, but Casey, let me tell you, if my brother had gone on the television set with Oprah Winfrey and Mm. talked about me, we would be on the phone by now. It has been (laughs) 
days. What is going on? How have you not spoken? I do not understand. And that is truly wild. I guess that gives us more of like an inside look into how the royal family works and how there might be less of a family and more of an institution. <laughs> 100% because this also makes me believe this even more that he did it. Right. Maybe he did it because I'm like, you're not reaching out. You know, if my brother insinuated I was racist or talked about the color of my nephew's skin, the phone would be ringing. I'd, I'd be on the phone and I'd be like, who did it? Who said it? Yeah, <laughs> this is a mess. This is a mess. You know, as a mixed person who is black that grew up in an interracial family, none of this surprises me. Similar to the next thing we're going to talk about. We're just going to tie it all together today. So mixed race couples are posting online about moments when their relatives were racist. And it's a lot. And for me, it reminds me of my childhood. This all started after Twitter user Kima Bob noted, quote, I don't think the racism mixed kids face from their own families is discussed enough. And the responses are devastating. One commenter noted, quote, my Nana called my father that black bastard. When I pointed out that I'm black too, she said, I know, honey, but it's not your fault. I was six. She was raising me. Another commented, I was completely rejected by my dad's parents because they didn't like the thought of someone who was part black taking their last name. And I must say, when I hear what Prince William did, where he hasn't called, he's saying we're not racist, all these things, these are all red flags to me because through my 30 plus years on this earth with my family, and I have written about this publicly, so I'm not dragging anyone in ways they have not been dragged before. Every single white person in my family has done something because we are all racist in some level in my family. And the problem is with black families that are mixed is that people think because they had a black child, they are now resolved from all their white supremacy. And that's just not the case. It still keeps going. No, it is not. And obviously you can speak to this, but the, the idea should be that you feel safe in your family. And, you know, that is, so when you're in a, in a place like this and you're hearing things like that, that is traumatizing. That is something that you need to work through for the rest of your life. Yeah. And you know, it, what, what I get at and what I want people to know, and maybe we'll talk about this more later in the show when I have more coffee, but you know, we, you grow up thinking that your family is a refuge and a safe place for you to just be yourself. And that's what makes family so incredible. But what we hear from, whether it's racism, misogyny, homophobia, the most terrifying moment of your childhood is when you realize like it's not perfect. It's not always going to be a refuge, that your parents hold biases that may impact you. And when it comes to interracial folks, it's like, you know, one day your white grandfather father never planned that his grandson was going to be black and he's got to deal with that and he has to deal with the 50 years of how he treated black people through his relationship to you and they're going to fail a lot and that's okay and i think we just need to move to a place as a country which is what i hope the royals model where we engage in the conversation and do not ignore it by saying oh we're not racist because let me tell you you probably were racist at one point many times actually yep every every white person has uh time to learn and unlearn 100 and also me, I know some of my, I know a lot of my family members are racist, but I still love them. Sadly, <laughs> we don't work through it. <laughs> All right, so moving on. Today is a solemn day. One year ago, the World Health Organization officially labeled COVID nineteen as a global pandemic, and much of the shutdown that followed began. In the years since, we've lost over 500,000 Americans. We've stayed home, worn masks, and washed our hands. Dr. Anthony Fauci became known in households across the country. Joe Biden ran and won a presidential campaign, and everything from restaurants to Broadway was shuttered. To explore and document just what that first official day of the pandemic was like, BuzzFeed News coordinated a massive oral history project about March 11th, 2020 that you can see on BuzzFeedNews.com right now. It features voices from politics to pop culture to journalists who were on the ground and saw firsthand what happened. To talk about the piece titled Tom Hanks, the NBA, and COVID's Day of Reckoning in the U.S., 
an oral history. We're joined by BuzzFeed News Deputy Director of Breaking News, David Mack. Hi, David. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, guys. Good to be here. You know, first, I want to talk about the scope of this project. I mean, it's astounding. You spoke with 65 people in four countries. When you began working on this, what were the stories you knew you had to tell? Who was on the top of your list? She said, it's funny, isn't it? I remember about like a month or two after this day last year, when I was thinking to myself, we should really get started on this now because I would really like to do <laughs> tell the story of that day. And do you know when we got started on it? Like a few weeks ago. <laughs> I, I, we, we were a little busy, a little few things happened last year anyway. So uh, look, the top of the list were just, we basically the whole idea was we wanted to try to take our readers behind the scenes of the news that day. So we wanted to give them a sense of what was going on behind the headlines and, and the people that were making news. So I wouldn't say that we had certain people that we were targeting, but we had certain events that we wanted to try to sort of get behind the scenes of. And we started by making a list of all the stuff that happened that day. And we went back through the archives and we were looking at stuff that we'd published and other people had published. And we were truly astounded at just how much happened that day. Uh, And I think a lot of people remember that night, right? but they don't remember all the stuff that happened in the lead up to that day and all the sort of threads of the country that were sort of intersecting in this way where COVID was sort of shadowing all of them. And then it just sort of exploded that night. I love that you use the word shadowing because reading this, I was like, oh my God, this was just waiting in the wings for it to pop out. All these other bigger issues that were just kind of hanging out there. And, you know, reading it, it becomes very apparent just how futile everything we were trying to do that day really was looking back. But, you know, you begin the story with the National Guard going to New Rochelle, New York. um, And that's where we begin the story. So talk to us about why there and who do you speak to? So we started the day there because those were the first people to wake up in what was then called a kind of containment zone in in America. If you remember, I mean, I, I was down in Brooklyn and I remember thinking to myself, wow, it's I'm lucky that it's contained up in that section of, <laughs> outside the city. I'm glad they closed the gates to COVID, you know, like we really got to make sure it doesn't get out of there. Of course, you know, I spoke to the mayor of New Rochelle and he sort of told me in hindsight, of course, what a ridiculous concept. It made sense at the time, but how silly now that we, we thought we could sort of close the gates around it. And he, he had this wonderful analogy. It's like he, we thought it was a kind of kitchen fire that we could use a fire extinguisher on. And of course, we know now that the fire was already through the walls and it was in the air ducts and it was everywhere by that point. And so, look, it was important to me to start the day there because that was sort of a historic thing that the country was waking up up to. And there were the covers of the, some of the New York tabloids here calling New Rochelle, New Rush Hell uh, up there. And I, I remember thinking like, what a dangerous place it must have been. And God, you know, people in hazmat suits and stuff. And of course, it was everywhere by that point. You know, and it's so interesting you say that because there is, we were all having different feelings that day. You know, like when you read the piece, the mayor talking about like, we're talking about like, what if we're out of food? What if like all these emergency situations and probably that day people who are in those positions are just like, what's going on? Like, it's just like, we're all in a different place. <laughs> Another person we spoke to in New Rochelle I, was just a, a kid in, in high school. His name's Ben Feinblum. And it was important to, to us for this story to try to tell 
the story of the people who were making the news that day and the people who were just caught up in it, regular people, people in New Rochelle, people in uh, Rome, cafe owners who had to close their businesses, people in, in soccer stadiums and basketball arenas who were there for the kind of end of sports. And this young man, Ben, who we spoke to in New Rochelle, he, he sort of remembers March 11 as kind of the day everything changed. So let's just take a listen to Ben. March 11th was like the day of reckoning where we realized this is really going to come and affect people's lives. It's not some distant thing that's only on the West Coast or in China or Italy that this is going to get to everybody eventually. So I think, as you said, all these things, when the NBA shuts down and people that actors people look up to and are well-known and you're banning travel from certain countries, I think that was the day for like, oh shit, this is coming for us. I remember thinking like, what a dangerous place it must have been and god you know people in hazmat suits and stuff and of course it was everywhere by that point yeah and what's so interesting about this is that you know i was in new york at the same time as you we were in the buzzfeed news headquarters and we were like oh new rochelle that's so far away but like obviously it was in new york city if it was in new rochelle because the airports are in new york city (laughs) all right well we'll be back to dive deeper into march 11th 2020 We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. I'm John Gonzalez, the host of Sports Illustrated Weekly. Sports Illustrated has delivered the best storytelling in sports for 70 years. First in the pages of the magazine, then on SI.com, and now that tradition continues on a new podcast. Each week, we'll dive deep into the best stories from around the sports world. We'll ask the questions that we're all wondering and push for the answers we all want. Everything from investigating the Super Bowl's impact on L.A., to examining why booing is as big a part of the fan experience as cheering. Sports Illustrated Weekly is here to bring you the entertaining tales you can't get anywhere else. The kinds of stories that make you smile and laugh, clap and cry, marvel, think, and fall in love with sports all over again. Sports Illustrated Weekly is available every Wednesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now. After 30 years, it's time to return to the halls of West Beverly High and hang out at the Peach Pit. On the podcast 9021OMG, join Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind-the-scenes stories that actually happened. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them all the good stuff that happened off camera. Get all the juicy details of every episode that you've been wondering about for decades as 90 90- 
9210 superfan and radio host Sissini sits in with Jenny and Tori to reminisce, reflect, and relive each moment from Brandon and Kelly's first kiss to shouting, Donna Martin graduates. You have an amazing memory. You remember everything about the entire 10 years that we filmed that show. And you remember absolutely nothing of the 10 years that we filmed that show. <laughs> Listen to 9021OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're talking with David Mack about the March 11th anniversary of COVID-19. You know, the other thing that really hits you is how many things were actually happening on this day. It's essentially the day the primary ended, or as a CNN reporter you spoke with said, it was the day we at least stopped caring about it. What was it like inside the Sanders camp where it seems like they were dealing with multiple tragedies at once? They were. Ruby Kramer, one of our politics reporters here, did a lot of the reporting for this section. And she she was on the campaign trail herself uh, and sort of remembers the kind of shutdown slowly creeping up and how just the night before they'd been on March 10, there'd been a bunch of uh, votes that night and Biden had done very well. And if you recall, the kind of the tides had started to turn for Biden by this point. It was pretty clear he was on track to be the nominee after doing really terribly for a long time. Right. And everything was coming up Biden and they were celebrating a Biden HQ. But on March 10, both the Biden camp and the Sanders camp decided kind of together to start canceling events. And, you know, the next day, you've got the Biden team waking up thinking, well, okay, we're going to be the nominee probably, but how do we campaign? in an election where you can't have big rallies and you've got the Sanders team thinking, well, we've sort of built our whole momentum on having big rallies and having Bernie as this kind of celebrity, right? And we can't do that anymore. So what is our path forward? And it seemed like the path that day really was ending for Bernie Sanders. Mm. And, you know, speaking of politics, I want to shift our focus to the White House, which you have a lot of great details about. You know, you speak to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the CEO of Delta and the head of J.P. Morgan, which were like the big businesses having to coordinate around this pandemic response. So did you guys actually talk to the Trump administration, though? Because I didn't see them pop up. <laughs> Zach, we tried. We <laughs> did, no, you did. I know David uh, Mack definitely tried. <laughs> we tried uh, a bunch of people from the administration. We got a few responses politely declining. I'll say that much. But we did do our best to piece together what happened in the White House that day. And we heard, as you said, from Dr. Fauci, who was in the Oval Office with, uh, with the president, then president, talking about the kind of questions he was asking. And then, yeah, as you said, there was this marvelous scene where a bunch of bankers or the top bank, heads of the top banks were in the White House as well for a meeting with the president. We talked to the head of JP Morgan, as you said, who, who talked about how they were having conversations about what is the financial system like? And they were wondering, does COVID live on cash? This is the kind of concerns that they had at the time. We didn't know. They were wondering, what are people going to do if they're afraid to suddenly use paper money because they're going to get sick? Uh, and it just goes to show just how little we knew at the time. Wow. And, you know, I have to ask this. We're about, I think, day 51 of Biden's presidency, and you are writing a lot about Trump's presidency. So now looking backwards at Trump as president, what do you see differently when you think about what he went through over this next you know, year overseeing this pandemic? I guess the only way to answer that is there's a wonderful anecdote from uh, the J.P. Morgan uh, chief operating officer who told us that uh, 
Dr. Fauci came in into the room where all these bankers were waiting and Dr. Fauci kind of explained that the administration had decided to suspend travel with Europe and here were the scientific reasons for why they were doing that. And then the president came in and talked about how he had just had his first COVID test and described in vivid detail the feeling of going into his nose and apparently sort of wriggled his eyes around or something to, to quote the head of J.P. Morgan. And he said, I, it was quite a vivid description of what it felt like to have a uh, bud shoved up your nose, which is something I think a lot of us have come to experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... You know, you've very artfully woven this story together, which includes the state of political turmoil everyone is kind of thrown into. But what may bring this story home for more people is the Tom Hanks of it all. He was in Australia, your homeland. What are your recollections of that part of the day? And how did you go about putting that part of the story together? Yeah, I was pretty terrified how we were going to tell the story of Tom Hanks. We, we did try for Tom Hanks and Rita. <laughs> Unfortunately, they declined. <laughs> we did get Chet Hanks, who, yes. uh, if you recall became a kind of Instagram sensation within that day because he went on live, basically, and told the story of what had happened to his parents. And he recalled, you know, what his mom told, you know, mom giving him a call when he was filming and telling him what had happened and the kind of fear that he felt, obviously, as uh, any of us would have felt when their parents are becoming some of the most high-profile people in the world to test positive for this, right? We also talked to uh, the Premier of Queensland, Australia, which is basically the governor of the state of Queensland, and she recalled sort of texting with Baz Luhrmann, the director of this film that Tom Hanks was working on, getting a text from Baz Luhrmann saying, uh, I kind of need to talk to you about something, <laughs> which I thought was a uh, pretty good detail. And basically how this kind of, it was a wake-up call, not only for the US, but also obviously for my home country of Australia. Uh, the Premier of Queensland, she told us that they had a, a national meeting scheduled for that day, essentially, uh, about COVID with the heads of all the different states and the federal government in Australia. And it had just come off this Tom Hanks news. It was very very clear that the virus was in Australia. It had infected one of the most famous people in the world. And it really was a kind of driving force for the government to just really act really fast and really quickly. And uh, of course, famously now, Australia has shut its borders and you can't get into Australia. I, if I was to try to go home right now, I would have to spend two weeks in a hotel room before I could see my family uh, because of the quarantine measures that are in place. And those measures were essentially decided within 24 hours of Tom Hanks testing positive. Wow, wow. Well, you know, something I really, really personally loved about the piece is your ability to show how Broadway was a really big part of this day, and that it did come to a screeching halt. And when Broadway comes to a halt in, the New in New York, you know, this is one of the biggest industries that the city has. And you guys did a great job of showing that, like, a person that you're going to feel the saddest reading about in this entire thing is this poor Broadway usher. There was a single unnamed usher blamed in the press for shutting down the entire industry at the time. So, David, do you feel like you've given him a bit of redemption in all of this? This is a credit to uh, my reporter, Julia Reinstein, who actually worked out who this usher was. He was never identified at the time in the press, but she was able to track him down. And he wanted to talk. He wanted to share his story about what it had been like for him. This was at a time when, you know, it, there were only a couple dozen cases in the city at the time. And so when he started feeling sick, he was told by his urgent care doctor they thought he might have pneumonia. It wasn't something, COVID wasn't something he was thinking about. I mean, he was just a guy trying to hustle and make a living, right? And living in an expensive city, he had to go to work. And basically, yeah, that was the day, March 11, when uh, he got his test back as positive. And then the reports emerged that the first case had uh, come out 
concerned on Broadway. Of course, we know now that the virus was everywhere in the city by that point, including in Broadway shows. There was uh, a lot of the cast of Moulin Rouge had already sort of fallen ill by that point. And we've spoken to a couple of those people as well who realized when the news broke about the usher on March 11, that, oh, crap thing I was feeling the other day actually probably was COVID as well, because this guy fell sick just down the road from us. I'm glad he's getting redemption then. Poor guy. (laughs) David, finally, BuzzFeed is no stranger to telling oral histories. Notably, there was the internet's best day, which is the story of the dress and the llamas. This seems like you've told the story of the internet's worst day. What was it like putting this together? You know, I'm sure it was emotional, but was it also cathartic? Yeah, I, you were talking about the dress and the llamas and how wonderful that day was on the internet. I do look forward to reading that piece every year. And I sort of see it as a time capsule. And in many ways, I feel like we were putting together a time capsule for history when we did this as well. A kind of first draft of history of letting people in the future know what it was like on this day. And I, it feels like every year when this day crops up, we're probably going to see this story crop up again and people will share it again and be like, that's right. Remember that. Look, it was sort of cathartic, you know, a weird way because it did make me realize that like no matter whether you were a kid waking up in New Rochelle or the district attorney of Manhattan or the head of you know the top infectious disease expert in the country this was something we were all dealing with that day and it became the day that it kind of swallowed everything in the US and our lives here and uh, you know I, I think it's nice to, in a way to to hear from people in their own words and hear you know the fears that they had and also just sort of looking back to hear how we've made it and what it's been like. I cannot believe it's been a year. Well, thank you, David, so much for your work on this. It is truly tremendous, and everyone should check it out. And and pour a cup of coffee. You know, really get into it. That's really something. (laughs) Look, it's not short. I won't lie. But but it was a big day. There was a lot of news. You're giving it the just respect it needs. Mm -hmm. As I said, we're first draft of history here, baby, so we got to get it right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that was historian David Mack. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) us. That's it for today. Come back and join us tomorrow. And remember, Prince William, pick up the phone and call your brother. Be sure to subscribe to BuzzFeed Daily on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to come back for more of what you love about BuzzFeed coming to you daily. I haven't really woken up until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Hi, I'm Robert Sex Reese, host of the Dr. Sex Reese Show. And every episode, I listen to people talk about their sex and intimacy issues. And yes, I despise every minute of it. I yeah. mean, she, she made mistakes too. Right? That's I mean, true. She, she did she, kill everyone at her wedding. But hell is real. We're all trapped here. And there's nothing any of us can do about it. So join me, won't you? Listen to the Dr. Sex Reese Show every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to gear up for the NFL postseason. Yes, sir! 
Head over to NFLshop.com today for the largest assortment of officially licensed gear. I need it! NFL Shop is your destination for jerseys, T-shirts, headwear, and more. Oh, you're sweet with it! Come back after the game for the best selection of NFL gear anywhere. How you like that, baby? Rep your team pride with styles fit for the whole family. To shop now, go to NFLshop.com. 